Hello and welcome to episode 163 of the Cognicast, a podcast about software and the people that create it. I'm Robert Randolph. This week, host Gadi Shaban talks with Sean Corfield about World Singles Network, Cold Fusion, Closure Tooling, and more. Sit back and open your ears, your heart, and your mind to Gadi and Sean on episode 163 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everybody. Today is July 27th, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Gadi Shaban, and today is my great pleasure to welcome Sean Corfield to the show. Welcome, Sean. Hi, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, it's a total pleasure to talk to you. You have been one of the most preeminent members of the community for a long time. Thank you. So this week, I'm doing your podcast today. I'm doing a lunch and learn for the team tomorrow on open source governance and licenses and stuff. And then I'm doing his podcast on Thursday. So kind of a weird huh. week for me. Wow. How many people are at World Singles? In total, across the entire company, there's about 12 of us. Wow. Yeah, that's usually the reaction we get. We have two closure developers on the back end, me and hired man, Kevin Downey. We have two hardcore JS developers on the front end, Paul, who's in Minnesota, and he's also really interested in closure. He used to go to the closure meetup, and Aaron, who's up in Seattle. And we have a design UI UX guy who's been with us for a long time and is moving around all over Europe. And then product owner who's on the East Coast, who's one of the founders, the president's up, actually, is the president in Seattle? Has he moved to Seattle or is he still in L.A.? I can't remember. Member services used to be all based down in L.A. and they're all over the place now. Wow. Uh, so that's like one of the things eight. that's yeah, yeah. Half the company is member services. We're a high touch dating service. So, you know, it's kind of interesting because we've been remote for fully remote for nearly all the time I've been with the company. And we were pretty much fully remote before then because there were quite a few people hired not in the SoCal area. And right now, Dev is split between northern Washington State, just north of Seattle, Minneapolis, San Francisco Bay Area, product managers on the East Coast, and the UI UX guy is off in Europe. He bounces around between Tehran, Istanbul, Paris, and I think Stockholm, maybe. <laughs> just to bounce around for work or just bounce around life at the life. moment you know the way the company works is essentially as long as you can be available for california core hours we don't care where you are and our hr person she actually moved back to romania and i didn't know for about three months that she'd moved so you know that's kind of how it works if you're doing your job you can do your job anywhere which i love that is really quite nice what got you into uh, world singles in the, in the first place I, I went through a long phase where I was primarily a Cold Fusion developer. I was working at Macromedia. I was the senior software architect. And we bought Alaire, who owned Cold Fusion. And my team was C and Java. And when we bought Alaire, they said, well, you know, we're now going to eat our own dog food. And so you folks are going to learn Cold Fusion. And so I was like, okay, they were just putting together the version that runs on the JVM. And so that was the version that we worked with. So we had Java interop and OO and mm -hmm. metaprogramming right from the get-go. And I stayed with Macromedia altogether for six years. And then Adobe bought us. And I loved Macromedia. And I did not love Adobe so much. I think within the first few months of Adobe uh, acquiring us, I heard, oh, but we've always done it that way so many times. 
and I just despaired of getting anything done. And so after about a year, I got frustrated and left. But I was still primarily a Cold Fusion developer at that point because I was so hooked into the Cold Fusion community, which, like Closure's community, is really tight, very supportive. And so I went freelance, and I did a lot of freelance Cold Fusion work and a lot of architecture, a lot of coding standards for people. And through that, a couple of my friends who were already engaged with World Singles said, oh, let's bring Sean on board. And so I came in as a consultant in 2009 at the start of what was going to be the big version two rewrite of the platform. The platform had been developed essentially by one of the founders starting back in 2001. And he self-taught Cold Fusion and then went on to build the first version of the platform. And the company recognized that it needed to modernize the code base so that they could really extend what the, the platform did. And so they engaged a new CTO who engaged several consultants to come in and look at the requirements and design and build a modern Cold Fusion platform. And I came on board full-time in 2010, by which point the platform was well underway. And I'd been tackling some of the sort of the thorny problems which they'd had problems solving with Cold Fusion. So one of those was a process that periodically scans all of the profiles to look for updated profiles and produces XML packets that it then sent to a proprietary search engine. And they said, can't launch, try any tech you want. So I tried Scala because I'd been interested in learning that and it had XML literals and so on. And it worked. It came for the XML literals. Yeah, the XML literals. Yeah, it was great. And I liked the functional programming style and we got it working. The problem was that the actor library that was built in Scala 2.7 had memory leaks. And so it ran just fine as long as we just restarted the background process about every 24 hours or so which wasn't a big deal. It was certainly more reliable than the attempts that had been made before at solving that process. And so then I was like, oh, well, Clojure looks interesting. I wonder if I could write this process in Clojure. And I ended up with a much smaller program that was very nice and clean. It didn't quite run as fast as the Scala one, but it ran without needing restarts for weeks. And so at that point, I said, well, let's try using Clojure as our kind of you know, hardcore development language for the hard problems. And the Cold Fusion developers learned it and said, well, this is kind of neat. And so that was kind of how I came to be at World Singles. And then World Singles became a closure company. Wow. So so in a way, Cold Fusion was your first hosted language, or at least the JVM version of Cold Fusion. Yeah, is- I suppose it was really, because prior to that, I'd been doing a lot of sort of low-level stuff uh, and then Java. And I'd started doing Java in, I think, 97. I'd been on the C++ committee for most of the 90s by that point, and Java was kind of an interesting diversion from that in a very different language. And I'd done quite a bit of Groovy. There was a brief period before I joined World Singles where I was at a small startup, and we built a system with Groovy on the back end and Flex on the front end. I don't know if you remember, that was once a Macromedia, then Mm. Adobe product, and then an Apache open source project. In the Um, rich internet. Yeah, Yeah. back in the rich internet application days. And so, you know, I'd enjoyed Groovy being a less verbose and more dynamic version of Java. I liked Scala for being less verbose, but I did not like it for being much more static and having a really fussy compiler. And so I really liked Clojure for being very dynamic. 
I don't know much about Cold Fusion, or at least predates me getting serious. I, I know it's not really one of the older technologies in terms of being 40 years old, but it's maybe 20 years old. First version came out in the mid-90s, so hmm. it's about as old as PHP. And what distinguishes uh, it really from the sort of PHP model or... One of the things that was always a guiding principle for Cold Fusion was that it was aimed at being very easy for essentially non-programmers to build stuff. So it was very focused on being additional markup that you put in HTML pages. Mm. And the very first version actually had tags that began with DB. And so you could run a DB query in the middle of your HTML page and then format the results of that query. And it gradually developed more programming features over time and switched from DB to CF. And by the time I first encountered it, it already had a pretty good scripting language, which was JavaScript-ish. And over the next couple of releases, it really got some pretty good scripting features. It had the missing method handler like Ruby does and Smalltalk. You could do metaprogramming through it because everything has metadata about it and you could actually modify the metadata on the fly. So you could add new methods to objects. You could add essentially static data and static methods to the metadata. And so as a scripting language, as opposed to the tag-based language, the scripting language is not bad. It had closures before Java had closures. So it's one of those things that unfortunately, because it's primarily thought of as an old proprietary language and the community is very small, a lot of people don't really know what it's capable of. And we had a pretty big code base before we started converting to Clojure. And what I did was I built a little library to allow me to embed Clojure directly into CFML, into hmm. CFScript. Because it, at uh, that time, the it's it still went through the JVM. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it was running. And in fact, it's compile on demand. So again, kind of like Clojure, you know, you make a change, you reload it in your browser and you've got the new version compiled and running. So the whole, you know, source deploy, compile to class files in memory, that's kind of been how Cold Fusion's been since about 2001, 2002, which, you know, is not what people expect because it used no. to be a C plus system and it was interpreted. It was very much a proprietary engine, but it's got really good Java interop. I'm trying to think, I think you can dynamically load jars into it at runtime. You certainly can. There's an open source engine, which we actually use rather than Adobe's engine. And so you can do dynamic loading of new classes. You can do some pretty sophisticated things. It's got all the sort of the map reduce filter kind of stuff built into the collection types. So it was kind of a relatively nice fit to slot closure in underneath sure. and have the full immutable data structures of closure accessible from CF. And right now we've got 113,000 lines of closure, roughly. And our Cold Fusion code base has come down to, I want to say, probably about 15, 20,000 lines. And it used to be, you know, a couple of hundred thousand. That was my next question. What was the, is sort of the evolution of, so, so you've really been slowly converting, yeah, subsuming we, all the Cold Fusion code. When I came on board, we built version two, which was essentially a monolithic web app all built in Cold Fusion, and it was all server-side rendered HTML. And then we started looking at mobile apps. And so we needed uh, a responsive front end and an API-based back end. And the initial version we built, we actually built the API in Cold Fusion, although most of the underpinnings at that point were closure. And then once we'd sketched that out, we decided, okay, we're going to 
really seriously go for it. We're going to build a complete responsive desktop. And we hired JavaScript developers, and they started on a React.js front end. And at that point, I said, well, you know, there's no point in continuing with ColdFusion for the API behind that. We might as well just build it with Ring and Composure and go the whole hog on the new apps. So by the time we launched that, that essentially obsoleted the entire server-side rendered monolithic web app, but we still had a couple of internal apps and we still have those and they are gradually being rebuilt from the bottom up. And so since I am now the only person on board who knows both Cold Fusion and Clojure, it falls to me to rewrite <laughs> all of this legacy code, which I mostly wrote in the first place in Clojure, which is both kind of fun and also at times horribly frustrating and tedious because the interrupt layer is, it has some subtle gotchas. Huh. I was wondering if it was if the horrible aspect was the forensics and the archaeology you have to do on your own code to figure out what was going on or occasionally <laughs> I, I will admit occasionally I will go look at something and my wife laughs about it because she sits across from me at the desk we both were at home all the time and I'll say God which idiot wrote this code and she goes was it you about five years ago and it's like, it's like yes <laughs> it was me yes. And I'm sorry if you can hear that squalling in the background. That's one of the cats, and I can't do much about it, unfortunately. Oh, no, no problem. I have a, I had a dog barking in the background. We're going to have to f figure out how, how we're going to navigate having a dog with, and a baby, newborn soon. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the um, one key thing with that is make sure that the dog doesn't feel that it's not getting any attention once the baby's born. Because you might get bad behavior from the dog if it thinks that you're shifting all your love over to some oh, other no. puppy. <laughs> so that, that often happens with cats. If people have cats and they have a baby and then they stop paying attention to the cat, the mm. cat will start acting out. I feel way more comfortable with my ability to tame cats than, than I do with dogs. We've had cats for years, <laughs> but probably dogs for about five. So we can transition to talking about being a veteran software architect. Yeah, certainly the veteran software architect thing is my little joke because... It's tongue-in-cheek. It's tongue-in-cheek because I often feel like I'm kind of the oldest person in the room. And that was certainly one of the odd things. When I joined Macromedia, that was a very young company. <laughs> and I genuinely was one of the oldest people in the department outside of you know senior management. And even some of the C-level staff, they were pretty young. And that all changed overnight when Adobe acquired us. And Adobe had people who'd been at Adobe for 20, 25 years compared to Macromedia, where if you made it five years, you got a watch. And if you made it 10 years, they gave you a top of the line, fully loaded MacBook. So it was kind of, and they would have like big company ceremony for people who'd made Ooh. their 10 year anniversary at Macromedia. And 10 years was nothing at Adobe. So I went from being the oldest person in the room to one of the youngest. But certainly at World Singles, I'm the oldest person in the room. And it's it's like, yeah, I'm a veteran software architect. You know, I've lived <laughs> through all these architecture wars over the years. Yeah, was, um, there's so many different ways to interpret that. But, you know, I think there is something that, that draws people who have seen a lot of different things over the years to closure. That, that draws them in, right? Or yes. anecdotes of people who found like frustration in the industry doing other, maybe other languages or other systems, and then kind of a renewed life doing Yeah, and I mean, closure. when I first got started in IT, I mean, you know, my first 
jobs were at an insurance company and then I kind of fell into a job after university where I was working on compilers and interpreters and runtime systems. And we designed and built one of the first ANSI validated C compilers. We got our validation, I think, on the same day as Borland and Inmos, I think. We were the first three. And it was a it wasn't intended to be like a commercial C compiler. It was a C compiler that analyzed your code to spot undefined behavior and implementation defined behavior and things like that. So it was an analysis engine that just happened to have a full runtime and actually pass the ANSI validation suite. And at that same company, we also did weird things like porting COBOL compilers to new hardware. So Microfocus had a COBOL compiler. We ported it to the, the Sun 4, as it was before it was really called the Spark and the Motorola RISC system. And so a lot of the work we did was on that kind of thing with compilers and runtime systems. And then I moved into, let's see, I went to a an actuarial, which might seem odd, but they hired me because they were working with Inmos transputers and they wanted to have someone write them a compiler from their actuarial formulae down to parallel C to run on the transputer grids. And then from there, I moved to a company that did source code analysis tools. And we had a C analysis system and I wrote a C++ analysis system, which is kind of how I got into C++. I didn't know you had such an analysis background. Seems like yeah, I mean that was projects. my thing. The yeah. Test suites and compilers and verification stuff. That that was a big piece of my early career. And the other sort of piece of work we would do is that we would go into companies and analyze their source code. We did, you know, software metrics, we did linting heuristic stuff, and we went into one company in Texas. And the way we generally worked this was we would get a large code base from them in the morning. We would run our suite of analysis and tests and, and highlight things that we thought were unusual. We'd go have lunch with them, talk to their engineers, and then in the afternoon we'd present our findings. And the, the management were pretty skeptical because we were an expensive analysis tool. And so when we came to the presentation in the afternoon, I was going through presenting our results. And then I said, oh, and, and this one thing cropped up, which I thought was kind of unusual in the code. It was C code and they had a macro defined two different ways in different modules. And I said, you know, this potentially is a bug. I don't know, but it did get flagged as being unusual. Same name, yep, different same body. Same name, different body. <laughs> and one of the engineers got up and left the room at that point. And I carried on with the presentation. And he came back in about 15 minutes later, whispered something to the manager who stopped the presentation and said, how much is 50 licenses of this tool? And we were like, oh, okay, what's made you change what did mind? I do? <laughs> and he said, you found a bug that our engineering team's been looking for for six months. Oh, my God. And so it was just one of those weird things. And we found that kind of repeatedly with the static analysis tools where we would either highlight modules that had horrible complexity metrics or just very unusual structure. And quite often, we'd highlight some bug that the engineering team had been trying to track down for ages. And so that was kind of how we sold the tool. And then it was after that that I got into web development. And that was just such a completely different dynamic from going from these massive industrial code bases and a focus on analysis and verification and standards to what was completely the wild, wild west. And some of the excesses in the, the dot-com bubble were just insane. There was a company called Broadvision operating out of Silicon Valley. 
I don't know if they're still around, but the first version of the system that I got involved with was all in C++. And if you wanted to so much as change the styling of a form element, you subclassed something in mm. their framework. And of course, it was frighteningly expensive. And ultimately, that was how I came to the US. They wanted to have a company that was friendly to them that had been doing a bunch of work with them, which we were in the UK, come over and set up what they considered a small software shop in the Bay Area to take on projects that they didn't really want to, to deal with themselves. And so that was small projects under a million dollars. And I found that we would have we would run into small startups essentially that were using Broadvision for their e-commerce platform and spending, you know, half a million dollars in software licenses and half a million dollars in consulting to get the website built. Which, things you know, we to, look back uh, on that and it's just absolutely insane that small startups would spend a million dollars on their website. I mean, not if, not if you have to subclass yeah. something to change a font, right? Well, they <laughs> did change it a lot. Good. By the time that I'd stopped being involved with them, I'm pretty sure they'd switched over to kind of a JavaScript-based engine. And I'd moved into more traditional web development by that point. But it's been very interesting to see how web development has led to, again, very complex systems, huge distributed backends of these systems with so much complexity. And of course, working with them has gone from HTML with a bit of JavaScript to now these incredibly complex JavaScript front ends and these reactive frameworks and, you know, a whole new way of building backend systems. So we've come full circle for the complexity and then some. Yeah, I was working with somebody yesterday to send to transfer money within within a customer's account to set up a new service at work to just to move money around. And we had some visibility tools that will show us what happens when you move money just from point A to point B. There were maybe like 12 services implicated from one call when we talk about, you know, talking to all of our banking systems and anti-money laundering. And just it's just you're right. The. We have come back full circle. It's different. It's complex in different ways, for sure. Mm -hmm. But definitely feels like the edge of my ability to comprehend and keep these things like juggled. I don't know if you have that same feeling, but yeah, I, I find as our systems get more complex, you've really got to be able to dive into it and figure out what the data flow is over and over again, because you just can't hold it all in your mind with a system that's that big and that complex. And I will say that the way Clojure being very dynamic and, and working in the REPL does make that easier because you can explore the code kind of live in the editor and be able to get at definitions and doc strings and things like that, which I've, I find very helpful navigating our own code base. That helps for one service, but if you have fractured if, you're, if your control flow is segmented into all kinds of different services, then there might not be a jump to definition. You know? That is true. <laughs> yes, yes. Even for us, we have a, an increasingly large number of services that we jump between, some of which are third party, some of which are in-house. Pretty much all of our programs that run have APIs on them. And so even our own systems are communicating with each other through APIs or through queues and things like that. So... Yeah, it's a whole different kind of complexity. But nonetheless, you have four or five people that have that loaded into their working set in their minds, and it's totally manageable. You might take a hit 
doing like context switching between services or just reminding yourself of something but yeah just before we got on this call i was rebuilding one more part of the cf app thought i'd got it all set up and i'm running it through and it's not doing what i expect and i added a lot more print lines into the closure code and fired it up again and suddenly i was like Ah, yes, there's all this other piece of closure code running that I'd forgotten about while I'm trying to do this straightforward interaction. Right, I've got to go in and fix that now. So yeah, it's the first place where we have integrated from the bottom up as we build the closure code into all of the, the auth mechanism that the cold fusion app uses top down. Uh, and so getting that all to play nice across the two languages has been very challenging. <laughs> I, I know you as uh, one of the more unique things about you is you're a very early adopter of closure alphas when they get put mm -hmm. out. I think you're almost infamous in um, <laughs> anytime an alpha comes out, you'll, you know, a couple hours later, I will see a message from you that says, hey, we have this running in our staging environment and it's going to be in prod shortly and <laughs> no problems encountered. And I, I, you know, I'm sure over the years I've seen a message where you've said, oh, I've run into a bug or something. But I think the vast majority of the cases is like, ah, I've updated, it's in prod, everything's good, <laughs> all systems are green. What enables you to do that? Well, it kind of dates back to to early on when we were adopting Clojure because we adopted Clojure in the pre-release phase of 1.3. So it was as Contrib was being broken up into all the little libraries. And I made the decision then that if we were going to adopt Clojure, we had to start with 1.3 because of the big changes in Contrib. We didn't want to have to rewrite all our code to switch from 1.2 to 1.3. So I said, well, We'll start using 1.3, we'll see how it goes. I hadn't got a sense at the time of exactly when we would take it to production because we were building a lot of low-level pieces. In the end, we went to production on, it was either Alpha 7 or Alpha 8, I believe, of 1.3. And it was also around the time that I picked up what was Closure Contrib SQL, and it became Closure Java JDBC. And a sort of an aside here, that really surprised me. I had a lot of work I needed to do with SQL databases, and it really seemed that almost no one at the time was using JDBC and SQL databases in the closure world. <laughs> and so I really needed that library, and it was clear that, you know, Stephen Gallardi had stepped away from it, and no one picked it up. And I kept jumping up and down and making quite a fuss, and I think it was Stuart Halloway who eventually said, okay, okay, if, if you really want to use JDBC and you're willing to maintain the library, split it off into a contrib library and we'll go from there. And that was kind of how I came to that. But because we'd gone in on that very, very early edge of the language and we went through all the pre-release of 1.3 and there were also a lot of other libraries appearing at the time yeah. that you'd pick up in a certain pre-1.0 state. All of contrib was in a pre-1.0 state at the time. It just seemed pretty natural to go, oh, there's a new alpha of this out. We'll incorporate it, run it through the test suite. Yep, it passes. We'll put it in production. Yep, it works. Great. And so we got into the habit of doing it. And once we got into the habit of doing it, there was a competitive advantage in being able to use the new features. And so big things like spec, mm. when spec dropped in the pre-release, 
we picked it up immediately and started to use it. And so by the time the full release came out, we had a lot of code using spec. We moved to 1.10 pretty much immediately. We had already gone from Linigan to boot, so we picked up all the Clojure CLI and Depths EDN stuff. As soon as that came out, we were using Depths EDN back in 2018. Pretty sure 2018, sometime in that year. Uh, I don't remember the exact timeline, but I'm pretty sure it's 2018. So the stability of Clojure makes it viable and the stream of new features is valuable. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the stability in that means, yeah, we jump onto the alphas as soon as they appear. I was looking forward to tools.build because we had finally, after talking about it a lot in-house, switched from a bash-based set of scripts to orchestrate stuff to a closure script to do it. And then tools.build came out and we were able to slot that in and simplify quite a bit of what we were doing. And, you know, we're pretty much always on pre-release versions of the CLI and <laughs> therefore pre-release versions of tools, depths, alpha. So what um, kind of stuff are you doing with tools build? What kind of, so, so you've ported some legacy closure scripts to <clears throat> the do some build processes? Yes. So we have been pretty early to jump on the exact function bandwagon and switch a lot of our processes over to that. So we were already doing closure minus X, whatever, and running that all from bash scripts. And in running it from a single closure script, we kind of ran into a problem about what's on the class path because there are certain things you don't want on the class path while you're running your tests and so on. And we'd looked at various ways to either isolate the class path or run in sub-processes. And so tools.build gave us a little toolkit for doing a lot of that because you can create a basis with a set of aliases, create a Java command from that, and then run that in a process. Mm. So the way we have our repo set up at work, it's a mono repo. So it's one big Git repo with 40-some sub-projects, and all of those sub-projects have their own depth EDN file. And so to run the tests for a subset of those sub-projects, you've essentially got to compute what the arguments are going to be for the test, which directories to look in, because Mm. it's not just one test directory, it's a whole bunch of sub-project test directories. I see. And the dependencies, well, you know, we're going to use this local route and that local route and so on. And so we already had code that was doing this work for us. Some of it was in bash scripts, some of it was in Clojure. And we amalgamated it all into Clojure. And then it was relatively easy with tools.build to actually turn that into, you know, create basis, Java command, process. And that's how we run our database migrations. It's how we run our tests. It's how we build our artifacts, how we do the deployment. So our CI pipeline runs the full database migrations, runs all the tests, builds all the artifacts, and then deploys them to a staging server all automatically. And from there, once the business team have approved the stage versions of the apps, there's an interface that they can use on our admin app, which is the CF Closure mm-hmm. Hybrid app, where they can say, yep, you know, these apps need to go to these servers and off they go. Uh, and so that's all Very automated cool. as well. I, I, I really, I, I got to play with tools build and anger over the last week and we were setting up a a lambda my colleague and i joe a lambda that was packaged up and shipped off to aws but what i don't know what struck me was the exec function in closure that the the dash x having your project and your tooling class path separate 
and tools build, all three of those things, they're they're very harmonious together. It all mm-hmm. just kind of makes sense. And so it's not really it's not really one library tools build. It's really the comprehensive it's a comprehensive feature set, I guess. And they all when you build when you put some effort into one part, it pays off adjacently too. So we were able to, you know, have our project dependencies for like the actual code that was running in the Lambda. And then the build script, they're isolated, but they're co-located in the same repository. It's very easy mm-hmm. to change. And you could even, you know, you could share structure with other Git dependencies. If you want to like extract a function out or have something, some common tooling, you could put it all in one place. But that's, it just feels a little bit more principled than what I was doing beforehand. We've gone through a lot of iterations with our mono repo, particularly this last year. We started off with Linegan, as everyone did a decade ago. And we started to bump into not really limitations of Linegan, but the awkwardness of extension through plugins. It just seemed a lot of work to have to write a plugin for everything. And so we switched to boot back in, I want to say 2015. And that was kind of nice because all of the tasks were really just simple closure functions. And that allowed us to, to streamline how we dealt with our mono repo and to move to the idea of having separate sets of dependencies for things and it all being controlled from the top of the mono repo. But we started to run into bugs with boot because the pod mechanism, which is how it creates the sort of the isolated runtimes, it does some asynchronous refreshing of the pods behind the scene because they're kind of expensive to stand up and tear down. And we started running into bugs with that where things were happening asynchronously and messing up some of our tests or, or other stuff. And then the other problem we had was the file set abstraction, which is kind of a great idea in principle. It essentially leaves you in a situation where your editor will often think that the definition of a function is in one of these temporary directories that's part of the file set abstraction. And that got a little frustrating (laughs) and a little slow. We were definitely looking forward to something that had the basic composability of just writing closure functions and to have the declarativeness of having your dependencies in EDN files, which was something we were already doing with Boot. So that's something that Boot didn't force you into doing, but no, it made Boot sense. No, Boot actually had assumed you would programmatically set up your dependencies mm. in code while you were setting up pods, while you were setting up tasks. And we found that meant that analysis of the dependencies exactly. was a little hard because it was all embedded in code. So we extracted them all to EDN files, which we ironically called depth.edn. <laughs> but they had a completely different structure. And so when the CLI and depths appeared, it was a case of, well, okay, maybe it wouldn't be such a big jump to get there. And so the first thing I did was restructure our EDN files and change our tooling to pick up the new depth EDN <laughs> format. And then at that point, I was like, you know... We're halfway there. We, yeah, we're halfway there. <laughs> we could just, we could change. And so that's why we switched. And definitely that drive for simple components that compose well has really been very helpful for us dealing with this increasingly large, complex repo with all these sub-projects in. Hmm. I missed the boot train when it when it flew by around 2015, but I think they, they did get... The, the boot project got the builds are a program aspect <laughs> very right. But as you said, like the dependencies are hard to analyze because there's not a there's not a canonical place to go look for your dependencies unless you made some and then your you know then your build tooling has to go 
has to be aware of, you know, whatever convention you've set up. And I agree about the, the file set being great in principle, but probably challenging. I'm very excited for the next six months of closure tooling, adopting tools, build, having a lot of end to end, just like a, let's say a program that you can pull down that packages a Lambda directly and gets <laughs> it into AWS. That's something that I know a lot of other language communities have where you just you know, serverless deploy, blah, and it just appears and it's, you know, dependency cognizant, but I don't think we have anything like that. You know, we have a lot of tooling that requires you to know that, oh, you have to make an Uber jar and an Uber jar is filled with class files and Amazon expects you to have a magic class that you know, that has this signature. Right. And if you don't conform to that, you get this cryptic error, which means that now users have to AOT compile their closure code. And it's just a lot, you know, it's just a lot to think about, but I hope some tooling springs forth. I, I say that abstractly. I hope this nice thing appears, but I'm trying to make some of these nice things too. <laughs> You know, it, that, that actually kind of reminds me of one of the key lines in the, the etiquette for the closure community, which is, you know, don't come to the community complaining that something doesn't exist, yeah. go make it. And it's certainly been our experience where we've gone, oh, you know, we could do with a library or a piece of code that does X. And it's like, well, it shouldn't be too hard to build it. And we build it. And sometimes we go, yeah, we could open source that. We could put that out there. And I think we would have put out a lot more open source if we hadn't been very much feeling our way as we were trying to learn closure in the early days a decade ago. I had some functional programming background, but my two then Cold Fusion programmer teammates did not. And so a lot of our early code and a lot of our early decisions were not as well informed as things are these days. But of course, so much more of that tooling and libraries has appeared over the decades. So, you know, we just build on the shoulders of giants there. <laughs> Probably a transition to talking about next.jdbc or Depstar or any of the other sure, open source. Happy to talk about any of the, the open source stuff that I maintain. Which is a ton of stuff, eh? Yeah, I do seem to have gathered up quite a lot of open source libraries over the years. And I will say that it is nearly always because I'm using the library or I have a need for something. So I either will take over a library where the maintainer's not as active, which is what happened with Tool CLI, because we were using that quite a bit at work. We were using core cache, core memo eyes. So when Fogus kind of stepped away from those, I was happy to pick them up because we relied on them so much. Obviously, Java JDBC, I've already mentioned how that came about. The evolution to Next JDBC, again, because I'd had the idea of a better API, a more efficient JDBC library that fitted in better with the way Clojure approaches these things. And in fact, you and Hired Man had both kind of prodded me there because you'd both talked about reducible collections and JDBC having some mm. facility for reducible result sets. And so that was something that I was putting together. And I was putting it together, I think, at Conj or, or just after. And it was when Datafy and Nav yeah, just announced and shown off. And so I, during the conj, I built those into a namespace in Clojure Java JDBC, but it really kind of seeded the idea of, of what would that look like if it was built right in if it was, to the system from yeah. day one. Let's see along the way, what else? Congo Mongo, we did a lot of work with uh, MongoDB 
back in the day. We have since pulled back from that. But while we were doing that, Congo Mongo was one of the MongoDB wrappers and the maintainer had become inactive. So I took over that. We were using CLJ time very heavily and the maintainer became a little inactive there. So I took over that and I still co-maintain it with Michael Clishon, although it's very much a deprecated library now. We very strongly encourage everyone to use Java time. But I, I still see people cropping up on the beginner channel on Slack going, oh, I've got this code with CLJ time and it doesn't do what I expected. And I'm just like, oh, please don't use it. Please don't use it. Please <laughs> use Java time. And yeah, I, I took over Depstar, which you started because we'd started to use it at work. And so I needed it maintained and I needed it to have additional features. Although I and will I say now that tools... so much for taking that over. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say now that tools.build is out and has Uber and JAR, I, I look forward to a day where I can archive Depstar because everything it does will be baked into those two tasks in tools build. And if not, though, it's just a library call away and you can call it from tools build. So Well, in fact, yes, because I've set up Depstar so it has an API namespace and a jar and an Uber function that are API compatible with the tools build. Uh, jar and uber so people can already use it as drop-in replacements but i so, hope eventually that will not be necessary what work does it take to make something that is compatible with that style you just take a map is that the extent yeah, of it? it just it's uh, a function that takes a hash map with the same parameters as specified in the tools.build api and then behind the scenes i just map them to how depstar expects things to work i'd done some speculative work with the focus on minus x and exact functions to make depstar into more of a toolkit with a set of tasks that were all invoked via minus x and so it already had uh, a function to synchronize and write POM files, another task to do the AOT compilation, mm. and then a final task to build jars. The POM and the AOT stuff don't map very well onto the way that Tools Build does stuff. Tools Build has a much cleaner API for that, so that's kind of nice. But taking the output of write POM and compile CLJ and just running the jar or Uber function, that fitted very well with Debstar. Nice. I'm seeing a growing tension now between a lot of tooling that is oriented towards the command line, where it's not necessarily like a CLJ X invocation, but it's, you know, any command line invocation is necessarily going to have some syntax to, to contend with. The dash the X is maybe easier because everything is rolled up into a map, right? Yeah. But still, though, when you make command line tools, the interface of the command line is not, it's not a rich interface. There's not very much rich data structures. There's not, there's not really higher order functions that you can, you can't partially apply a, a command line invocation. It's harder, it's harder to map things and just working in the command line is just harder in general. But, but I think there's this sort of fetishization of command line utilities now. And I think some people look at, you know, other languages where you have very fast startup command line and we want that and so we you know we have growl native image and a whole ecosystem of tooling around that but it's kind of an anemic interface you know and eventually you just yeah. want to write a program and i don't know i would 
you know, I shouldn't, you know, part of the closure etiquette is not to say what other people should do with their time, but I really wish there were more rich interfaces that took maps and returned maps and less. Well, it's, it's funny because, you know, I took over tool CLI because we had a bunch of, of command line based stuff at work where we were using it and passing in a whole bunch of dash options and, and flags and so on. And I will say that since we've moved to the minus X format, I don't think we use tool CLI at all at work now. I'd actually <laughs> have to look through our code base, but I'm pretty sure we have eliminated nearly every main function except for the ones that start up like web servers and REST servers, you know, where you are literally doing Java minus JAR on an artifact. So pretty much everything else, I think we've switched over to exact functions. And that means we don't need all of that argument parsing. So I'm still maintaining it. I'm still, you know, going to do bug fixes and stuff as people raise issues against it. But it's no longer a critical piece of infrastructure for us because for us, having the exact function API to utility is just much nicer. Sometimes it's a little bit more verbose. And certainly if you're on Windows, the quoting can be horrendous. I split my time between a Mac and a Windows box, but on Windows, I'm using WSL2. And so I'm either on Mac OS terminal or I'm on Ubuntu. Hmm. So that you don't have so the quoting issue in Ubuntu. I don't have the quoting issue. The other thing that I've done in several of my projects that now work with exact functions is instead of requiring strings, I allow symbols hmm. and convert them to strings inside so that if you can write the, the argument as a symbol, you don't have to worry about quoting it anyway. Hmm. That's not always possible you know, if you're passing in a file path and things like that. But it helps for a lot of the simple arguments. And, you know, and when you rub against the edge of what's possible or, you know, or readable on the command line, then you can just move into a program, right? Mm -hmm. You know, or pass a file or pass a reference to a file that has yeah. the data. But yeah, I find that like, it's just strings don't make great APIs and Certainly lists of strings don't really make great APIs. So it's nice to be able to just, you know, easily adapt your things to a map. I think I had a, I, I, I had a couple entry points that were, you know, it's just a matter of adding an empty map argument and suddenly I can call it from dash X. Mm -hmm. So, or not, I can just call it like I was from the REPL or from my editor, but uh, that's a nice little uh, change yeah, that's it's, happening. It's interesting to see the tension between, you know, the quote, traditional command line advocates and the exact function advocates on Slack. And sometimes I'm like, okay, yeah, I know you prefer the old command line, but I just want to talk about the exact function stuff here now. And, you know, we can go talk about tool CLI style invocation later. I think like uh, as a community, we're very passionate about closure in general or people who, you know, and if you see if something works in closure, you want to make it run everywhere. And so you port it to all the platforms and then you can make an, a native image and run that too. So it's, it's just natural. It's contagious. But sometimes, maybe most of the time for me, just stay in the JVM, make a map, call it, <laughs> call a function on a map and you're, you're set. <laughs> Well, one of the things that's, that's been interesting to me, we've been looking at Polylith uh, as on a, a, a way to organize our mono repo. And Polylith is, is many things. One of its pillars is the command line tool that it has, which is how it figures out 
incremental testing. It'll report on dependencies between components. It'll check you're only using interfaces and not implementations. And mm. it can produce a lot of reports, a lot of information about your code as well. And one of the first things I did with that was to create essentially a REPL version of it so that I could fire it up and then type just the arguments in the command part into my little poly REPL and not have to spin up a new JVM for it. And I tended to just run it like that all the time. And I mentioned to Joachim Tengstrand, and he went, oh, that's interesting. What exactly did you do? And I told him a little bit about it. And the new version of Polylith that just dropped on the branch last night has a prompt command. And if you say closure minus M poly prompt, you get a little interactive REPL that runs Polylith commands. And so you can fire it up once and now just run like your little REPL, except all it understands Very is nice. Polylith commands, which <laughs> is terrific. And that is, to some extent, how I run my build script a lot of the time. I'll just fire up a REPL with my build script. And then, you know, I'll just tell it, oh, run the tests on this project, you know, build a jar for this, you know, run the database migration, do this. And they're all just functions that I can just invoke from the REPL. You know, so there's no startup associated with that. That's one of the other major benefits of what I noticed with tools build is just iterating on your build process is just iterating on your program. You know, it's just another side of your build is a program. And so, you know, if you load up a REPL and you have in your editor some commands to, let's say, Uberjar something in a particular way, well, at least the Amazon Lambdas want you to do things in particular ways. So you load up your build script with the build alias, you jump into that REPL and you start evaluating things and you see <clears> what's <throat> produced. And then if it doesn't match your expectations, you know, you do what you usually do, <laughs> which is you, know, you change something. But it's really nice that that sort of like you don't have to go to another place to do your iteration. You don't have to go launch some monolithic script and wait for that to complete and then come back to it and, you know, and analyze what's happened. You just stay in your REPL and there's something to that. Now, you might get the opposite problem where, you know, there's command line utilities that should be REPL facilities. But here, you know, now you might get uh, a lot of REPL facilities. Now you have to start calling a bunch of command line things and like slurping the standard out from your invocations. So I'm not on that side of the extreme yet, but it could happen. <laughs> I'm not sure. Have you ever played with Closh? I've used it a couple times. Yeah. 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 That I, I think is a very interesting little idea that, you know, it's a closure program that you type stuff into and it will run it as shell processes, but also it will run closure functions and, huh. and everything else. And I ran it for a while and then I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm not really leveraging the shell enough to warrant doing this because most of what I actually do these days is I sit in an editor with REPLs running and I interact with the REPLs. And there's not a huge amount that I run from the command line at this point. And I do even find myself, you know, in a REPL, I will just, I will interact with the files from the REPL rather than switch back to a shell because I can do it from my editor in a rich comment form. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, sorry, I, di I didn't know what you meant. You, you interact with the files, the not the scripting By files. closure, yeah. 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 But what I'm saying is, you know, I will even, if I'm like, oh, you know, I want to do some calculation on a depths file. Well, you know, I'm in closure. I'll just slurp it in and then process it as data. And quite often I will just write a little bit of closure programming while I'm in my editor because it's not it's less friction 
then switching back to terminal and then navigating around and, and using shell commands and then going back to closure with that information and doing whatever it was i was going to do whereas i can just write a little bit of closure and i've got the data right there it's done yeah yeah I very much enjoyed your videos on on using Rebel to debug <clears throat> and navigate. Are you still? Is that still part of your workflow? Uh, Rebel isn't, but a similar workflow is. I I switched to Reveal partly because with it being open source, I can much more easily extend it, and I built a whole bunch of of stuff on top of it. So I've essentially built a very Rebel-like UI where as it evaluates things into tap, it, tra it tracks the last value tapped and it will automatically display it in a table if it's tabular data. But it will do things like if you evaluate a URL, it will show a web page in, which Revel does. But I've also got it set up so that it detects certain other types and does custom stuff, which I can't do with Revel because it's closed source, so I don't know how to extend any of it. But you know, Vlad has been very supportive of people using Reveal, and it really is, you know, just a core part of my workflow that I have this visual display of data. And I actually have hotkeys in my editor so that if I want to know the sort of full help for a function, if I'm on uh, a function that's available on Closure Docs, I can just hit a hotkey and it opens the Closure Docs web page nice. in Reveal. Or if I'm on an expression that has a Java type or a class, I can say, well, open the Java Docs, and it will open it in reveal so you know i don't have to switch to a web browser i don't have to switch essentially away from my workspace which is vs code for three quarters of my screen and reveal for a quarter and so i run them side by side all the time and that's how i run my tests how i do all my evaluation how i do all my debugging and so it's very much what was shown in those videos but just using reveal instead of rebel well, I'm, I'll definitely link to those videos. I thought it was very compelling, just the, that sort of workflow, because like you said, it, you, everything stays right there. And you stay in data. You're not dealing with printouts of things. Right. It's the real things that you can poke at. So you forget what that's, what that's like when you use pretty much any other language, because any other language you're going to print and you're going to inspect and you're going to use the parser in your eyes. But yeah, having a little side sidecar tool is super useful. Um, yeah, and I mean, even for debugging, where you can just tap a whole bunch of values in there, and certainly with Rebel, where it tracked all of the tapped values, and then you could browse it as if mm. it was one big data structure. That is really nice. I, I think a lot of people don't yet realize the value of tap for debugging, because it taps data not strings strings not printouts yeah. yeah and you don't have to deal with like interleaving when you have you know concurrent printing or mm -hmm. you know a lot of the other stuff or or different printers in different parts of your program that do right yeah. bizarre things yeah well i've hit almost all the topics that i've wanted to and we're you know we've got definitely plenty of material any other topics or sh should we move to an outro Whatever you want at this point. We're definitely good on time. I just enjoyed this this conversation. It's weird to do podcasts. I'm still fish out of water. It's weird to have a conversation with somebody that you've talked to over years, which I've talked to you over years. And, you know, it's just when you put the re record light on. You know, I, the thing I kind of like about some of the podcasts is once you get into the flow of stuff, it often feels like you're just kind of sitting in the bar at a conference just chatting about stuff. And it can be pretty freewheeling. And even though, you know, we mostly focus on tech because we're doing podcasts for the community, you know, you, you get a, a much broader insight into people, both the interviewer and the interviewee. 
are you thinking of going back to conferences soon or yeah i'm not going to go to strange loop this year i will go to conj when it starts back up presumably next year my wife and i were fully vaccinated pretty much as soon as we were able once they enabled it for 50 plus my wife got her vaccination the very same day and i managed to get an appointment a week later so we've been fully vaccinated since the middle of may and in the middle of june california kind of opened back up and so we did the thing that we have missed the most for a year and a half, which is going to eat in restaurants because mm. we used to eat out every week. And it's terrific to be able to go back and start supporting a lot of the local restaurants. We tried supporting them as much as we could by doing takeout where they were open for that and frankly tipping 100% every time we, we did it because yeah. you know we weren't spending as much on takeout as we would have done if we'd have sat in and had drinks and dessert and all that and just desperately hoping some of our favorite restaurants stayed open with that and we saw two of them close one of them's closed forever one of them has reopened but with such a small menu that it's just not drawing us back there but a couple of the other restaurants there was a, a little afghan restaurant that we absolutely love that was doing takeout and so we were ordering from there every month and the first time you know i tipped them the guy actually ran out to my car and he's like uh I think you made a mistake. And it's like, no, we no, really we want just... to see you survive. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah. oh, that's really generous. Wow, okay. And wow. so, you know, we just kept going back in there. And it's a, it's a little family that runs it. It's mom and dad. And, and it survived. And in fact, they have now reopened their other restaurant, which has the bigger menu. And that's now open for sit down. So they've been able to keep the two properties, even though they really only have the one restaurant open. Uh, for takeout and you know so that's really good to see it's still we're still in an area where mask compliance is really high so even though no one has to wear a mask here anymore everyone still wears a mask in the grocery store and you know a lot of people still wear masks when they're out and about in the community and i think that's really helped us keep our numbers down vaccination rates are super super high in this area uh, and mask oh, compliance jealous. is super high as well yeah I, uh, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and compliance isn't high, vaccination rate isn't high, and even, no. I don't know if restaurants failed here, I'm sure some did, but my wife and I were laughing about, it. like, right across from our neighborhood, there was a new restaurant being built in the middle of the pandemic. I thought, Charleston is a notoriously difficult restaurant market, it's like a, you know, food slash tourist Town, but I thought, who would have the audacity to build a brand new restaurant in the uh, like in the very peak too? But and that's then, tough. I really feel for a lot of people who are in the service industry because it's taken away so much of their custom, and of course, a lot of the folks they've had to lay off because they just can't afford to keep paying people have then gone and found other you know ways to live, and now of course the restaurants are opening up. And some restaurants around here are saying, well, you know, we're allowed to open at full capacity, but we just can't because we don't have enough staff. It's going to take us months to hire back enough staff mm. to open to full capacity. You know, and I feel very, very grateful that I worked for a company that was already 100% remote before this. And so, you know, from a work point of view, nothing changed for us. And in many ways, our business has done really well because, of course, with people not being able to date in person, they're dating a lot more in online. Interesting. Interesting. A lot more? Like Yeah, we've seen a substantial increase in the amount of online dating during the pandemic. 
because people can't meet up. So they that chat more online. They interact more online. Yeah. Well, listen, Sean, uh, it's just been great talking to you. I feel like I think the last time I saw you was maybe th- three or four years ago at a conference. It's got to have been several years. But it's good to hear your voice. It's good to see that you're doing well. Thank you so much for everything you do in the community, maintaining a million used libraries and putting skin in the game there. That's very much appreciated by me and I know everybody around me. So great talking to you and hope to have you back sometime. Thank you. Likewise. Great. Your host this week was Gadi Shaban, who is at Smash the Past, S-M-A-S-H-T-H-E-P-A-S-T on Twitter. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio. The Cognicast is produced by Jarrett Benford and Robert Randolph. The intro music is Crazy G, played by Russ Olson. The outro music is by Nasca at naskamusic.com. I'm Robert Randolph. Please stay safe and healthy out there, and thanks for listening to the Cognicast. Cast.